And the first question I'd like to pose and put to you is, is, is why read the Old Testament? So I was reading this passage again this week for this, for this message today. And there were parts of it and I was thinking, well, it can be quite dense. It can be quite difficult to get into the Old Testament. We've been going through the Old Testament in the last Sunday mornings. But it's a fair question to say, why should we even be looking at the Old Testament? It can be long, repetitive, upsetting and disturbing. And even in the chapter that we've just read, there are probably things that we've read and you thought, hmm, it doesn't quite seem like Christianity. It doesn't quite seem like the sort of behavior that we should be having in 21st century Britain. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, his words and behavior are sometimes jarring and appear a bit harsh or unreasonable. Throws Tobias stuff out of the room, disqualifies those, those priests, puts his hands on some people, quite evidently, and it sort of manhandles them out of the scene of that. How do you reckon with that? The New Testament appears to offer calmer waters of clarity and a flavor of grace and mercy and love. So it gives us a certain hesitancy about the place of the Old Testament. And I just want to say something this morning before we go into this passage to establish and perhaps re-establish our confidence in the, in the Old Testament because it does constitute two-thirds of the volume of the Bible. So this is the Bible that we have, and this is the Bible that we use. And I hope that we will be able to have confidence to be reading the whole of it. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was upon earth, certainly had enormous confidence in the Old Testament, the scriptures, because he used them. And he used them powerfully to live his life in a godly way. And we remember especially how he handled the temptations that he faced in the desert. How he quoted from the scripture, the book of Moses. It was certainly the position of the early apostles. And they quote extensively in the gospels and epistles, the letters, from the Old Testament. Demonstrating how what was said in the past has been fulfilled, especially in Jesus Christ. And the early Christian church had no problem at all with these scriptures. The early church was founded upon their Old Testament scriptures. Remember, the New Testament wasn't put into a format that people could enjoy as we do today for probably 350 years after, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, they had the documents, they had the gospels and the letters individually. But the formalization of all that took a degree of time. And meanwhile, they were basing uh, their understandings upon their understanding of what God had said in Old Testament times and how that was fulfilled by the apostolic in um, teaching about Jesus. The Old Testament is foundational to our understanding of the New Testament. I think it's interesting that there are, we don't hear a great deal about some of the practices of the early church, and for that reason, people can think, well, it was all kind of free and easy. I don't think it was like that. 
I think the early church came from a Jewish background predominantly. They understood the way the synagogue worked. They had the reading of the scriptures. They knew about prayer. And these things were the foundation of the early gatherings of the people. They didn't start with a complete blank sheet. In the Old Testament, we get a better impression of the fullness of God's story. So Galatians 4.4 talks about the coming of Christ and it says, when the time had fully come, there was a time, there was a period. The time went on, year went on, decades, centuries, Jesus hadn't come, the Messiah hadn't arrived. But after all that time, when the time had fully come, Jesus came. That reminds us that God had a purpose before the day of Pentecost. And he was revealing himself from the creation of the world. In the book of Genesis onwards, God is unfolding his story, his purposes. And we see the revelation of God's character over that period of time. How long-suffering is our God? It's one of the characteristics of God. He's a very patient God. How patient is he? Well, I can tell you how patient he is, and how we can all see how patient he is because of the way he deals with his people in the Old Testament times. You know, again and again, he calls them to himself. And again and again, they, they drift away from him, and he calls them back, and that's how patient he is because he holds back his anger. And we were talking just now about the, uh, the exile of the people into Babylon. But that only came at the end of an enormous period of time when God was showing his great patience to his people. Now, what an encouragement that is for us in our lives, because we know what it is to stumble and fall and to, to drift away from God. But to know how patient he is on the basis of the evidence of how he dealt with his people in the past is really helpful. Now remember the New Testament period covers you know, less than 100 years. That's all that's recorded in, in the New Testament period of time. But the Old Testament is covering a passage of at least four or 5,000 years, if one were to sort of do the arithmetic. But thousands of years are encapsulated in that way and we see God's character over time. And we see also the outcomes of those who follow God and those who don't. So we see the beginning of the story of somebody like Saul and how it starts with bright promise, even from his birth. But the ending is so sad. We see someone like David, and we see that though he fell and sinned badly against God, nevertheless, God could save him, looking back over the whole of that man's life, well, that, that's a man after my own heart. And the truth is told in these ways through, through life stories. So, here we're encountering today in Nehemiah a life story, a real event. So much of the Old Testament is not dealt with in terms of doctrine, 
objective teaching, but in terms of the life stories of people. So we read of the faith of Abraham. We see the patience of Job. We see how Elijah was made bold and how he learnt to pray. And it was in their life stories. And we all love life stories. <laughs> we can all identify with that. And that is part of the uh, encouragement of, of reading the Old Testament. So I've already said that uh, Nehemiah 13 is set in a situation where the people have come back. They're not as numerous as they were. They face enormous problems, but they've been overcoming those problems. They faced opposition, but they've managed to uh, deal with the opposition. They've had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They've built and they've fought. And uh, reforms have been put in place. Now this chapter is an interesting one because it tells us something about the distinctives or the differences that should be associated with the people of God. We're going to be looking at some of those um, differences this morning. I just want to do a little sort of side comment on this point. So in Nehemiah, we read a lot about the relationship of God's people to God but we also read a great deal about their relationship towards other people. Rather inelegantly, one could say that God's people were called out from their own backgrounds, their past life, they were called to be a nation, they were called to be a people who belonged to God and God was going to do such a work in them that there would be a demonstration of what would be the best in humankind. So as David was saying earlier, it's special to be made in the image of God. It's a sadness to have that image spoiled. It's a delight and the grace of God that that spoiled image can be restored. And uh, Nehemiah, and indeed most of the Old Testament, comes back to that theme again and again. God says, I've called you out, I've called you to be special, I've called you to be a different people. Not to carry on in the old ways, but to have new ways. Ways that please me. And there's sameness and difference. To be the best of humankind means something which is same, but also something which is different. So it's mainstream Christian teaching these days to say that to be a Christian means that you're going to be a really excellent worker in whatever place you're set. You are going to be a great student, not necessarily with first-class qualifications, but in terms of your attitude, your aptitude, your relationship to those who teach, your dedication, your discipline. Well, those, that's kind of mainstream being a Christian, is to be such a student. And I, I encourage that. I applaud it. 
you're going to be an excellent mother. Not because you've got all the skills, but your attitude, your priorities are going to be of that order. There's going to be an excellence and a, a high standard about you. And you could go through all the kind of different roles of life that we're in, and you can say, yes, to be a Christian is to be having our life restored, the image of God restored about us. If you're a friend, what a blessing if you're a Christian friend. If you're an older person, what a blessing to be a Christian older person. And there should be something which is a bit like the same as what we've been in the past, but it's cleaned up. There's restoration taking place. We are being recreated. So Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if you're a young Christian here today, I just want to encourage you with that thought that you have been introduced into an enormous world of opportunity. You are able to find out what the almighty gracious God can do in the life of a man or a woman who is saved. Every aspect of your life can and should be touched by the presence of God. There is no pitfall and danger that you're facing that God by his grace cannot overcome. There's nothing about your past that is going to necessarily just hold you back and drag you back. You're a new creature. You've been born again by God's Holy Spirit. What a blessing. As you sit here today, you're thinking about your life and the problems and the pressures and we're all conscious of our personalities. We're all conscious of our failures, our weaknesses. But by God's grace, we can be overcomers. And we can be those who, as it says in Colossians, uh, Philippians rather, shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You've got to shine. You can shine. You can shine on Mondays. You could shine like a star for Jesus Christ because that's what he does. That's what he loves to do. That's his purpose in his work in our lives. But I also want to suggest to you today that there's also difference. So in the book of Acts, it's very interesting to see that from time to time, the people, when they saw the early church, this spirit-filled church, this post-Pentecost church, on one day they were saying, well, this is great. I'd love to be a part of that. And it says they had great favor with the people. That word favor is used a, a lot. So you think, well, that's great. And we would love to have favor in this place, wouldn't we? And we do have favor. Believe that you know, the church here enjoys the favor of this particular community. We have invested in this community. 
And we, we are pleased and delighted, but not over-surprised, because we've got the precedence before us, that when God's people behave in godly ways, that people look up to them and respect them. And they're able to say, there's something good about these people. There's something I can really appreciate. But at the same time, again in the book of Acts, same period of time, there were things that happened every so often that it says caused the people around the church to fear. And it, said, it says in one place, no man dared to join them. You think, how does that work? On the one hand, people look at them and say, well, they're lovely people. And part of them says, I'd love to be part of them. But on the other hand, it says, no person dared to join them. Well, if you put those two things together, you have to say, there's a bit of a tension in the Christian life. And the tension is between being the same and being different. Showing something in our lives, that, which is extremely attractive because people can identify with it, and at the same time, showing a difference in our lives that causes people to be a bit nervous, suspicious, anxious. So tales were told about the early church. As much as it had favor, there was all sorts of rumors of what went on in their meetings as they got together. What was this bread and wine? What was that about? Oh, it was a bit strange, these sort of feasts that they had. I said that sameness is something we can really identify with because we all want to be respected, loved, appreciated, embraced. Difference is not such a comfortable place to be. To do things differently to others puts us, puts us out on a limb. And yet interestingly, God calls his people in Old Testament and New Testament times to be better than they ever have been, but also to be different, distinctive. And they will do certain things that others don't do. So the constant call in New Testament teaching is, and here's just one example, 1 Peter 1.15, be holy for I am holy. We read that and we, holiness is a very slippery word. What on earth does holiness mean? We think of saints and sort of very, very clean and proper people. What, what does holiness mean? Well, we have to think about God then. God is perfect, and Christian people are called to be perfect. Did you realize that? <laughs> Did you realize, actually, that we are called to be perfect? And that's what God is calling us to be. But we're also called to be different, as different as God is from us. So 
So we think of God and we can say, what a great God, what a marvelous God. But, wow, this is not a God to be trifled with. He's not a comfortable God. He's not a cozy God. He's not a come and sit on my lap sort of God. And we need to be very careful as Christian people that we don't fall into that sort of trap because our language is constantly in the area of love and grace and acceptance. We serve God with reverent fear. Christians serve God with reverent fear because he is a consuming fire. He's different. And in various ways we're called to be different as well. We're called to be different because this world is a fallen place. A place which has blackened the image of God and have drifted away from him and blocks its ears to his voice and doesn't want to have this king to rule over it. So every so often there will come points in all our lives where that difference, that I have to stand on this, I have to say no whilst everybody else is saying yes, when those things actually happen. And we're seeing this something in Nehemiah 13. Now there are various um, quite major issues of difference which are picked out in Nehemiah 13. We're just going to look at three this morning because of time and I hope we'll have opportunity in coming, a coming Sunday to look at the next two. Now the first thing I want to draw attention to in Nehemiah chapter 13 is the point about where do we get our wisdom and guidance? Christian people, where do we get wisdom and guidance? Where do people in the world get wisdom and guidance? Just think about that for a moment. You know, the people you work with, mingle with, the rest of your family are not Christians. Where, where do they get their wisdom and guidance? Well, they might get it from, they might get it from their families, parents. Social media is a really strong driver. Not so much that it's actually saying, this is wisdom with a big placard against it. But it's saying, well, this is the way things are done. This is the way we behave. So just the general everydayness pressures of peer group. You're in a group of people. How are they doing it? Well, I'll do the same. You just, you just do it because everyone else does it. Now, if I need guidance, well, what, what do I do for guidance? Have I got decisions to make? Where, where do I go for that? Well, again, you, you, you can get self-help books, can't you? you know, they're, they're always popular. There's a lot of stuff on the internet. Wisdom and guidance. Now, I'm an engineer. I go to the books to get my engineering knowledge. I talk to fellow engineers about this in order to be a better engineer. But I'm also a Christian engineer. So how do I, how do I live my life? How do I take the big decisions of my life? How do you do that in your situation, the decisions you're going to be facing? And so forth. Well, Nehemiah 13, 1 to 3. It's easy to slip over this, but let's not slip over it. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. 
the book of Moses was read aloud. First five books of the Bible, they were read aloud. I think the whole of the book, the whole of those five books was read. There's another example of it in Nehemiah chapter eight, where the Bible, the, the first five books, because that's what they had, was just read aloud. And it says, you know, there were men and the women and the children, and they were there for some hours just listening to the public speaking of the word. It was just read aloud. And what happened was this, that when God's word was read aloud and when it was explained to them, they immediately saw that there were things in their lives that needed to be changed. It says in Nehemiah 8 that they were desperately upset. When they heard the word of God read, they were upset. They didn't tick the box. They were upset because they saw that something was wrong in their lives and something had to be put right. And we're seeing exactly the same thing here in Nehemiah 13. On that day, the book of Moses read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. It gives a reason for that as well, because there's history. There's a reason for that. God always, not always, but quite often gives his reasons. A sin was uncovered. Because as we read the rest of the, uh, the chapter, we see that in all sorts of ways, Ammonites and Moabites had been very much admitted into the household of God. By marriage, by geography, they'd been allowed in. And it was as the word of God was read that they realized that what seemed completely sensible, practical, after all, I've got to deal with the Ammonites and the Moabites, haven't I? I've got to trade with them, I've got to live side by side with them. But God's word said to them, be very, very careful. There are boundaries to that relationship. And one of the boundaries is you're not to have those people in the assembly of God's people. I say in passing, that's an actually cardinal principle about what it means to understand church and belonging to church. What is the church? The church is the gathering of people who have been saved by Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. That is the church. On a Sunday, lots of people may gather in a building, but the church is a distinctive group of people who have known what it is to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been born again. And the Old Testament here is teaching us this message and the importance of making sure that we always understand the church in that way and as far as humanly possible and by God's grace that we recognize the church as the church. That's why we have a membership here, Not only reason, but we have a membership here where we know one another and we say of one another we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's not just a word. That's reflecting an actual experience that we've received. Praise God. And it's important for the church of Jesus Christ to be kept as pure as is possible. So sin was uncovered. 
and practical obedience took place. Verse three, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. That was not easy. That would not have been an easy task. There were relationships. And do you know how hard it is when relationships go wrong to be handling that? But they did it because their wisdom and their guidance came from the law of God. It came from the Bible. And here was a boundary which God had said was important. It was something they had to do. You know, if they'd gone to the United Nations, they would have said, well, that's a crazy way of behaving. But they had to do it. They had to work out what this wisdom and guidance from God meant in their lives. But the one thing they said was this, although we've been living in a different sort of way, if this is what God says, we will do it. And may God have mercy upon us in doing it. May God help us in doing it, but we will do it. So a question, my question is, are we hearing and responding to God's word? That's why we have such an emphasis upon the speaking of the word of God. Because it is the vehicle of God's word which is the way in which God communicates primarily with his people in order to turn them from a bad way and turn them into a good way. To change their minds, their attitudes and their hearts. Colossians 3.16 is the New Testament equivalent of that Old Testament passage How often was the word of Moses actually read aloud? Pretty infrequently, I think. There were sort of high days and holidays when that happened. And after all, the scriptures in that time were were sort of wrapped up on a papyrus scroll and and kept locked away. But we have open Bibles now. You've got it on your phones. You can open it. And it's a a beautiful expression of, uh, of what we read in Colossians 3.16, the beautiful opportunity in the 21st century. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We receive the word. The word goes into our heart. The word changes us. We encourage one another with the word of God. And that's the pattern. And it's kind of like, this is 24-7. We don't have to wait. These occasions are great, but we don't have to wait for a Sunday because we can share and be encouraged in the word of God together. God's people are different because that's where we get our wisdom and guidance. God's people are different because there's, there has to be consistency in our lives. We're not consistent. We're all inconsistent. But actually we're called to a consistent life. It's not normally a great problem for people who are not Christians. And you can see the evidence of that just by reading newspapers. Just, just listen to the news. 
and you can see that most people live lives which are pretty inconsistent. They say one thing and do another. They tell people one thing, but they don't follow it themselves. Their life appears to be one thing, but actually, you know, in the secret part, it's completely different. And so often these sort of things leak out in social media. You say, wow, I didn't think that person was like that at all. <laughs> but they are. They say, well, that's just life. It's just the way it is. But God says, no, no my people are to be different. There has to be consistency in every part of life. So here in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 to 5 and 7 to 9, we have an extraordinary story about the priest, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. And he was closely associated with Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah from this story of Nehemiah? Do you remember Tobiah? Tobiah and Sambalat, these were the two arch enemies of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Those are the people who stood outside and, and constantly tried to prevent the work taking place. Was it a good idea to be friendly with them? What was their agenda? Well, it appears that in Nehemiah's absence, back in, back in Babylon, Eliashib, the priest, the spiritual leader, He'd been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, in other words, the temple. And uh, he was closely associated with Tobiah. He provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions of the priests. It was through the reading of God's word that this problem was uncovered. This gross inconsistency. That at the very heart of the presence and worship of God, which was the temple, that this enemy of God had been entertained. Ooh, have a room, have space. And I would say it's a beautiful picture. It's a very strong picture of the way in which we can give room in our lives for things which are totally inconsistent with a Christian profession. And just as much as Tobiah settled in, and that was his home, that was his address, you know, number four room, temple, I've been there for years now, just as he could feel so comfortable, and so Eliashib the priest was completely comfortable about this. So we can get very, very comfortable with things which if we were to receive the word of God, we would have to feel very uncomfortable about. And this is what happens as the word is read seriously and as the word is preached, that people will be upset. And you may be upset even at the moment because you're thinking, yeah, I wish they, he wouldn't talk about that because I've got areas in my life that I just don't want to have God's touch upon it. I just want to close the door on that. Just leave me alone in that. I'll operate fine in other areas, but I don't want to have conversations about this. But that's what God by his spirit is doing as the word of God is read. There was compromise at the heart of God's work. 
And there's a domino effect of refusing God's lordship over the whole of our lives. And the domino effect is this, and it's very interesting. So here's the room where Tobiah is living. And it was the room that was used previously for the storing of grain and other things and tithes for the Levites. So all that's been removed and instead there's a nice double bed and a, you know, it's a living quarters for Tobiah to live there. But all that should have happened in that space was now excluded and hadn't been going on for a while. So the tithes weren't coming in. That's the next thing we'll be talking about. If the tithes aren't coming in, the Levites aren't being supported. If the Levites aren't being supported, they've gone back to the land which has been allocated to them historically. Not in Jerusalem any longer, not actually operating as they should be, which was explainers of the word of God, that was part of their work, but they're out in the fields earning their crust of bread every day because the tithes have not come in. And because the word of God is not now being explained, then the people are continuing to go astray. And sin is just rampant in the whole community. One sin, everybody's affected. So in the church, what you do in what you think is your private life does not only affect you, but it will affect everybody. Paul says, quoting from the Old Testament, something like a, a little leaven leavens the whole dough. In other words, a little tiny bit of yeast affects everything. A little yeast leavens the whole dough. Tiny inconsistency. It can be very, very damaging for the whole community. So here's the question. Are we wholehearted? I don't mean are we energetic and, and vigorous for... For, for some things, but is the whole of our heart ready to be pure? And it was said probably first of all in the 19th century, if he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. You know, think of the definition, you are my Lord. That means everything comes under his control and authority. And in the New Testament, Colossians 3, 5 to 14, which we won't read, but it talks about Things that we have to put off and things that we have to put on. But make a note of those verses and please read them later. And finally, I want to talk briefly about the use of money and to say this, that uh, just as I just said there, that tithing had stopped. Nehemiah 13, verse 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Interesting, isn't it? And they might say, oh, it's just Levites. They're, just, you know, they're doing their own thing. No one's got hurt. Temple's still there. Nehemiah cuts right through that, sees right through that completely. And he says, do you know what's happening? The house of God is neglected. The house of God is neglected. As a result of this, something really desperately bad is happening. So the use of money, 
how do people feel about the, the use of money? How does the world operate in the area of money? Well, God's people have to be different. Whatever answer you might give to that, I've got to say God's people are different in this use of money because they're taught from the Old Testament times about the importance of giving and being very careful about this, giving, so that the house of God should not be neglected. So that the work of God's kingdom should be able to carry on. The maintenance and extension of God's kingdom needs the sacrificial giving of God's people. I think that's a fundamental point that we've always had to wrestle with here and faced. And, you know, praise God, I think we, we learned the lesson. But I mentioned it again because we don't talk about this matter of money very much in the church. And if you're fairly new to the church, you might think, well, what's this all about? I was with a long-standing Christian the other day and he told me about the first time he heard about the idea of tithing. And he, and he got to the end of the conversation or the, or the talk that he'd had and, and he turned to the person and said, what is tithing? I don't understand what this is. Well, very simply it is this, that in Old Testament times, everybody was responsible for giving approximately 10% of their income to the maintenance and extension of the house of God. And that's the way in which the ministry was sustained. There were physical things to be done and there were livelihoods to be sustained. And it was approximately 10%. I say approximately because there are all sorts of add-on things and, and so forth. It gets quite complicated in the end. But that's what God's people learned in Old Testament times. And it's been very wisely said that in, in our time, in New Testament times, where Jesus is our Lord that our very first thinking and our first priority ought to be, what is my responsibility in the matter of maintaining and extending the kingdom of God? It's the first thing. The people had missed out on that. They'd forgotten that. They weren't reading the word, but the word does speak about this. Have we faced this issue? Have we faced this issue? Lots of us just put it off. I do want to encourage you to do it from your very, very earliest days. If you've just become a Christian, do think about this now because it's going to become harder and harder for you to think about it in later life. When things like mortgages and paying for this and that and the other and big bills start accumulating, it becomes increasingly hard if you haven't got this sorted once and for all before the Lord. And we read in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, Exactly what the early church did. It's not dramatic in the sense of, wow, it's just straightforward stuff. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So it's saying, it's a discipline. It's just something for you to do, something for you to think about. Every one of us, because actually every one of us has some sort of an income, so... It's not just left for a few who've got certain sort of amounts of money in their bank balance, but just like the widow came into the temple and Jesus remarked on her because she put in all that she had. It was tiny, but it, it was splendid. It was wonderful in the Lord's eyes. God's people are different. I'm not expecting people in Vardak Road to give to the church here. I'm not expecting Brighton Council to give to this church. 
Why should they? I wouldn't even want it. Wouldn't even want it. God's people sustain God's work. It's a privilege. It's something which he's given to us. It doesn't need to be that way. He doesn't need to have done it that way at all. It could come down from heaven. But we are involved in God's work. And there is this wonderful dynamic whereby God's people are different because they hear the word. Their lives are consistent. They use their money in different ways. The Apostle Peter writing to Christians says, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And part of the way in which we show the praises of this great God is by saying, God, you're so wonderful. I love you so much that I want the whole of my life to be yours. You are so precious. You're the first in my life so much that I want the whole of my life to be governed by what you have said. It even comes down to all that I have, all the resources that you've given to me. I just want to put it all on the altar. It's a sacrifice, but it's a wonderful sacrifice. And when a people of God are living in this sort of way, it shows to the world something of how great this God is. You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what is God saying to us and to you? We close with take my life and let it be number 850.